Welcome to Designers of Paradise, a podcast focused on people who are changing the ways in which we produce our food, care for our soil and water, and protect our climate. There's a steady flow of information now about the many ways in which agriculture is damaging our planet, disrupting natural ecosystems, polluting our air and water, and destroying the soil it depends on. But there's another set of stories to be told as well. These are the stories of the people dedicating their time and brilliance to reversing the impacts of our industrial food systems. From farmers and consumers to innovators and entrepreneurs, city planners and funders, an entire ecosystem of change makers is on the rise. Together, they're bringing in a next generation of agriculture, which is regenerating soils, food quality, local economies, and significantly, hope. Hope for a better, healthier, and more equitable future for all. These are the designers of paradise. These are people who see paradise as the natural condition of a world in balance, where our collective activity feeds the land and consciously works with nature to rebuild the abundance that supports all life, including our own. I'm your host, Eric Van Lennep. Designers of Paradise is produced by RASA, the Regenerative Agriculture Sector Accelerator. Please subscribe for Designers of Paradise at iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm talking today with a, a friend and colleague, Albert Bates, in the, in the U.S. in the state of Tennessee, um, who is based in Summertown at The Farm, and we'll get into what that is in, the, in a little bit. Albert is uh, a farmer. He's also a former attorney. He's a science writer. And he's uh, one of the, really, the, the inspirations and the sparks that is behind the entire eco-village movement. He himself has been a resident of an eco-village for the last 50 years. Uh, we met in Ireland quite a few years ago. And um, this particular conversation has been literally sparked by the release of his new book with Kathleen Draper on um, really the kind of updated and much amplified potential for the use of biochar as a primary strategy to draw down excess carbon and rebalance the climate gases. Uh, the book is called Burn, Using Fire to Cool the Earth. It was released earlier this year by Chelsea Green Publishers in Vermont. And don't worry, we'll, we'll give you a link for that at the end. And there will be one also on the page um, with the podcast itself. So welcome, Albert. I'm really excited to be talking to you today. Yeah, great to talk to you again, Eric. Um, one of the things that um, I'm curious about right off, you know, you say you're an ex-attorney, and, uh, you know, I only know you through your work as a, um, you know, an activist and an advocate for, uh, you know, transition-type strategies, climate change, uh, eco-village work, and that sort of thing. Was it kind of like one of these life, uh, you know, left turns that, that took you out of law and into what you've been doing now for a long time? Yeah, precisely. I was an uh, environmental attorney. I was focused primarily on issues around me of um, nuclear wastes and chemical wastes and uh, despoiling the environment, um, you know, forest uh, issues and water issues and that sort of thing. And I took a case in my nearby town of Mount Pleasant, Tennessee, where they had a chemical factory that was making agricultural chemicals, pesticides, herbicides, that sort of thing. And 
it was it was a nasty business that they were in. They were injecting their wastes into a deep well uh, that went uh, almost a mile under the ground uh, down to an aquifer and was contaminating that aquifer with millions of gallons of extremely toxic waste. In fact, it was so toxic that a single drop would kill every fish in the tank within 24 hours. Uh, and that was going down at the rate of millions of gallons. Uh, and so I, I took uh, this case and was working on behalf of residents who had lost uh, wells and had been suffering from health effects and so forth. And in the process, the companies argued that they didn't have to worry about contaminating this water source. It was the safest way to get rid of their wastes because being that it was a mile down, there was never going to be any need for it. Well, in the United States, we have a Safe Drinking Water Act that says you're not allowed to contaminate any source of fresh water. Uh, and it's not doesn't have to be toxic contamination. Any contamination will do. Uh, but in fact, uh, they were making this argument, and I had to make uh, essentially two cases in this, in this lawsuit. The first case was that population is growing, and so we're going to need water, even the deep water, eventually. And the second case was that climate is changing, and we're going to need that water uh, for that reason. And um, it was 19, late 70s, early 1980s at this point. So I was going into court with my experts and my uh, various uh, opinions, um, trying to persuade a judge in rural Tennessee that climate change was real. And I had to pull up uh, whatever scientific reports I could find. I went to my congressman. He was a young first-term congressman at that point. Uh, you might have heard of him. His name is Al Gore. Uh, and so <laughs> Al... Al started dredging the agencies and pulling up reports and held hearings on climate change. And that was very helpful to me because I was able to enter all of that into evidence. And eventually we won the case, but uh, I was deeply shaken by the experience. In fact, it wasn't long after that that I retired from law. I just, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't go on knowing what I knew. At that point, we were about one degree. Uh, you were looking at one degree this century. Now, of course, we're looking at uh, anywhere from four to six degrees this century at the current trajectory of heating, and that's in, that's in Celsius. Uh, global averaging, so averaging the ocean temperature and averaging the land temperature and so forth, going to an extreme that's uh, farther distance than we have come since the last ice age in the course of a century. And understanding what, that, what effect that has on natural systems, being an environmental attorney and fighting all these cases involving forests and water and so forth, I was very well aware of ecology and, and the web of life and how ecosystems function. And I could see how changing temperature that quickly would rent the fabric of life. It would rent the web. It, you'd lose strands. And as you lost strands, the, the web itself would begin to disintegrate. And as I saw that, as I understood that, it wasn't so much the degree for which we were changing. It was the speed at which we were changing. And that shook me so deeply that I, I felt that what I was doing was just inadequate. And I, in the, in the 1980s and early 90s, I just I retired from that. 
I became a mushroom farmer. I stopped doing the legal practice. I gave it all up and I just went off to the woods. And, and, and I was at the same time, I, I hadn't given up searching. I was, I was still a solutions kind of guy, not really a problem kind of guy. And so I was always looking and reading the, the latest literature, you know, and I wrote this book called Climate in Crisis in 1990. And Climate in Crisis, uh, which Al Gore wrote the foreword to, basically described the situation we're in today. It was an accurate prediction for that time of, of 30 years into the future. And here we are, you know, this is exactly what I had predicted in, in uh, Climate in Crisis, what would be happening now. Uh, and I feel that, or that I'm right or I'm wrong or, or that I see the picture or don't see the picture, the physics of the situation are such that it's compelling us all to examine whether we want to, as a species, continue to exist or whether we're actually going to uh, change enough to, to make a difference. And that's kind of the crisis we're in right now. It's, it's not a, a technical crisis, as I talk about in my most recent book. It's not really a technology problem. We have the technology to reverse climate change and do it quickly. The problem that we face is a social problem. And that's what sort of led me into eco-villages, the idea that you can uh, accomplish more with a carrot than you can with a stick, that people need to see the alternative, they need to experience or be able to go and visit and understand and touch and feel what the difference could be, that it's actually not going back in time, it's, you know, to the 19th century or something, it's actually a better life that we could be living if we were to just make a few changes in our lives. And so EcoVillage and the EcoVillage Network and starting work, work around the world in that department really sort of lifted my spirits. But it wasn't until I began to understand the workings of uh, the carbon cycle better that I began to see how actually we could reverse climate change. That's, uh, in some ways, it's kind of parallel to my own experience. It's interesting to hear that because I had trained in, I guess I knew I was going to do something like what I'm doing because I had trained um, in landscape uh, restoration technologies when, when that was a, a nascent field. But it, it was at a, um, it was at an event in, in San Francisco in I think it was 1985, um, which eventually and fairly quickly led to the to the conference which established something called Rainforest Action Network. But but that that event just just being in the audience at that at that preliminary event where tropical uh, scientists had come together and talked about the you know the rapid destruction of the the world's rainforests and the fact that nobody really seemed to be caring or even aware that this was going on that galvanized me and I literally walked out the door dropping everything else I've been doing and thought I would be doing and had this kind of crisis of um, yeah crisis of consciousness you know it was like I can't sit with this information and do nothing so it sounds real real very very similar to your description of basically kind of walking away from law practice and putting yourself into something that in your estimation was much more direct. Uh, so really appreciate that. Just, just to kind of, you know, we're going to ping back and forth between your work and, and um, the interest or understanding of our listeners. 
Um, and we talk about things like eco-villages, we talk about things of like degrees of global warming that make total sense to someone who is already immersed in that. But let's just, let's just um, do a little bit of qualification identification here for those who might not be as familiar. So for instance, when you talk about, or when we talk about, um, you know, keeping, keeping climate, keeping global temperatures below, uh, you know, 3.5, 4, 2.5, you know, 1 degree of, of average temperature increase, this seems trivial to most people who are not aware of that. So maybe you could give us just like a, a, a couple minute um, explanation of, of how a seemingly really low average temperature can have such a massive uh, impact on the, on the survivability of the biosphere. Yeah, the most of us go through the normal course of a day experiencing a several degree shift in temperature. You know, from the time we get up in the morning until midday, uh, we're gonna, it's, the temperature is gonna change by several degrees as the sun warms the earth around us. And then in the evening, uh, the sun goes down and it begins to cool again. And that sort of difference, a few degrees, doesn't really ever seem to make much difference to us. We, we go through our lives just experiencing that day in, day out. And so when we see something like a, a warning that we're going to have to hold it to 1.5 degrees or 2 degrees, we don't really register that because we don't have that, that experience of what it takes to heat all of the land masses and the mountains and all of the oceans uh, down to depths of miles, a few fractions of a degree, what it kind of heat that takes. And we're talking, you know, watts per square meter of solar influx or things like that. And again, people's eyes sort of glaze over very quickly when you start to use those kinds of terms. But if you just think about it in terms of um, life on Earth, rather than degrees centigrade or graphs and charts, just life on Earth, we arose in this sort of magical moment of what is commonly called the Holocene. It's an epoch in geologic time that has given us this marvelous average climate that seldom varies more than a few degrees over the course of centuries. And within that period, we get occasional ice ages, uh, you know, every 20 to 50,000 years, we'll get some kind of ice age. And yet humans have endured that. We have gone through those ice ages and we've continued to evolve. For the last 200,000 years, our physical form hasn't changed all that much. And we go through this process of uh, warming and cooling of the planet, these normal cycles. And, and we've, we, we figure, well, you know, we will always evolve enough technology uh, to be able to cope with that. Well, one of the things our technology is, is telling us now is that we, we've, we made a fundamental error in one of our assumptions about where we as the Earth exist in our solar system. We used to think that we were halfway between Mars and Venus, we're the third planet out from the sun, and we're in this beautiful zone, which scientists call the Goldilocks zone, not too hot, not too cold, just right. And 
that we're blessed by being in that zone where we could have liquid water and we can have um, an atmosphere and people and mammals and higher forms of life can evolve. Uh, and in 19, no, sorry, 2015, the scientists doing the astronomical equations on this um, Goldilocks zone discovered that actually we're at the very inner edge of that habitability zone. We're, we're coasting along, skating along closer to Venus than to Mars in terms of the habitability of this area, this region of the solar system. And just a slight change could throw us closer to Venus in that equation so that we wouldn't be able to support life of anything we would recognize here on Earth. A slight change, uh, you know, just really a few degrees would be enough to do it. And the, the temperatures that we're experiencing right now are still within the normal range of variation. But what we're seeing is a very disturbing trend, which is the rapid change that Earth is going through right at this moment. And there's been some recent scientific articles on trajectories where we're where we're headed and what the new steady state will be how we can find equilibrium at some future date and it looks like that we are not going to go back to our normal cycle probably now for millions of years that we're already off on a new tangent that will take us to uncharted territory of a warmer earth than the earth has has been in millions of years, and it will be millions of years before we can get back to the Earth that humans evolved in. Well, that human evolution was a rare gift. And what we've done essentially is to reject the gift now and say, we, we are going to try to survive in a world that we did not evolve in, that we did not know, that is significantly warmer significantly changed from the earth that birthed us. And the danger is that we're pushing us towards that inner realm of unhabitability that exists within the uh, proximity of the sun. And if we get across that threshold, nothing will survive. The atmosphere will dissolve, the oceans will uh, evaporate away, um, we will have an uninhabitable rock floating around covered by gases just like Venus and there won't be life of any sort or maybe a few thermophiles of you know very heat resistant bacteria living under some rock somewhere but uh, nothing like the world we know today. That's the danger. We, we, we didn't actually understand and, we, and many people still don't understand how humans can have that kind of Power that we would, would be able to make the, that kind of scale, that kind of vast change. Uh, mo many people, you know, you find here in, in the U.S. particularly, uh, whose churches tell them or whose um, uh, spokespeople for the general public opinion tell them that this is not possible, that uh, all of this is, is imagined by, by some group for some self-interest, uh, because it's not possible that humans could possibly make that change. Well, actually, it is possible, and we have. And then the 
what's left to us now, those of us who see this and understand this, and that would include 95 to 99% of the global climate science community, that uh, we need now to focus on how to get back from the precipice before it's too late. That's a really clear, terrifying, sobering um, explanation that I don't think is touched on often at all. You know, this, this whole, I mean, the, it, it, it seems to people who are trying to sound the alarm or trying to promote solutions, you know, we, we talk about degrees of change. We talk about trying to hold things within a certain range or even draw them back, back towards, you know, where they recently were. But this whole, this whole explanation of the Goldilocks zone and the implications of our position is something that I don't think I've actually heard laid out in that way before. Um, so thanks for that. Um, as I say, both terrifying and sobering, even for someone who spends his life working on this stuff. Uh, but let's segue then from that into, you had mentioned previously, we'll come back to the eco-village, I think kind of in a natural way a bit later on, um, but let's segue from that now into both the technologies the potential for um, you know, significant drawdown if we just ad uh, adopt those and apply them, but also that social barrier that seems to be keeping us from doing that right now. Right. Let me talk first about the, the technology before I get to the social part. Sure. In some ways, the technology is the easy part. I was uh, studying permaculture and teaching it and at my eco-village training center in Tennessee, and I went to a conference of permaculturists in the Amazon in, near Manaus uh, back uh, maybe 20 years ago now. And uh, I got to see it the first time there, the, um, the Terra Preta do Indio, the dark earths of the Amazon. And at first they didn't really register to me what, what was going on there. It was an anomaly that scientists were curious about but hadn't really figured out very much. And it was uh, how could you have a rich, deep tropical soil and black soil uh, so close to the equator when if you look around the world, most of the places that are lying close to the equator have very poor soil. They don't really store the nutrients in the soils. They don't have a winter. And so what happens is you have a, a tree or a plant die and the the nutrients are taken up immediately through this, the, the food web and they go into the next year's growth. Uh, you don't store nutrient in the soil. And yet you had this, this, these parts of Brazil, particularly along the Amazon basin, where you would find um, these meter deep black earths called terra preta in, in Portuguese, the dark earths. And the dark earths were a mystery because they had been observed by the conquistadors when they first arrived in the 15th century, and yet they hadn't been explained. Uh, and in the 1960s, they began to unravel this mystery, and by the 1990s, uh, there were conferences being held and a lot of science going into it, and it turned out, we now know, that those earths were man-made. Fascinating. How could that happen over such a large area? And in, in point of fact, it took thousands of years for the indigenous peoples of the Americas to make those dark earths. And actually, 
8,000 years if you go back to the origins of the process. So that actually is not confined to Brazil. It, you can find the same process underway in North America, the burning of the plains, typically by hunter societies, uh, moving animals around, moving vast wild herds of buffalo and so forth using fire. Uh, and you have these other kinds of effects going on in Australia and in other parts of the world where native peoples are using essentially a burning technology, fire, uh, in, the, in, in different ways that create a charcoal, and you can go back and carbon date these charcoal layers in the soil. And the, what tipped the, the point of understanding in Brazil was they began to see in these meter deep uh, layers uh, human evidence of like uh, pottery shards uh, and uh, fish bones and things far from the coasts. And that told them that they were um, witnessing a, a creation process and understand or a, an evolution of agriculture where the, the peoples of the Americas were understanding they could create agricultural soils where, there, where none existed. And so they were able to support large populations, which were of course wiped out at the Columbian encounter when the introduction of European diseases and slavery and various other things took out estimates uh, 90 to 95% of all humans living in the Amazon region were, were, were wiped out at the time of the Colombian encounter. Uh, and what was left behind when they disappeared were, were these dark earths that they had created over thousands of years. And so their agricultural fields and the cities that they built disappeared into this jungle. The first expedition of the conquistadors was Oriana. And he had described these vast cities of, you know, gleaming white cities with wide causeways that extended uh, many miles inland from the river and long wharfs that extended for uh, many, many leagues along the river, <coughs> large ships and statues and uh, big houses and so forth. And by the time the next expedition arrived 50 years after Oriana, all of that was gone. Uh, swine flu, bubonic plague, scarlet fever, yellow fever, all the European diseases that had been left behind by the first expedition had wiped out the entire population and all of their language and their history and their art and their music and their great vast cities and had replaced that with a jungle, with a for rainforest. So sometimes I, I look at the, the various forms of agriculture on the planet and I say, you know, it's funny, there's, there were two kinds of agriculture that were evolving at the same time on different sides of the earth. And they didn't know about each other until the time of Columbus. In fact, they didn't know about each other until just recently. And those, if you look at the, the, the earth from space, if you stand on the moon and look back down at the earth, you can actually see with the naked eye, these two styles of agriculture. On the one side of the planet, you have um, irrigation in the plow. And everywhere that begins, the Fertile Crescent, uh, Northern Africa, Northern China, today there are deserts because that's what irrigation in the plow does. They mine, it mines the soil and salts it. And on the other side of the planet, you had these vast rainforests that it turns out were also man-made. They didn't exist at the time that the conquistadors arrived. And so you have this, these two styles, one was 
both of them created by humans. One was building soil while the other was destroying soil. And for me, that was a bit of a revelation when I finally began to grasp it. It wasn't until some years after that trip, that first trip, that I went back and actually started looking in detail at these dark earths and understanding the science and attending some scientific conferences in Brazil about that. And today we call that process biochar. It's the idea of man-made charcoal, not used as a fuel for cooking, but used as a soil amendment, used to put in the soil to make the soil more fertile. And the way it works is not chemical, like chemical fertilizer, like the kind of Haber-Bosch process of making ammonium. No, the way it works is by biology that you have a biological habitat created in the soil by the porosity of this charcoal and its ability to hold air and hold water. And that's the secret of the dark earths of the Amazon. It's also, as it turns out, probably our best strategy for reversing climate change. We're going to take a break now. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Designers of Paradise is made possible in part by Mind and Media. Over the last quarter century, the writers, producers, storytellers, and media specialists at Mind and Media have spearheaded a multitude of engaging and complex communication campaigns. Mind and Media is a proud supporter of the work being done by the wonderful and passionate people of Rasa, who are engaged in the creation of a regenerative future for generations to come. Find out more about Mind and Media at mindandmedia.com. That's M-I-N-D-A-N-D-M-E-D-I-A.com. And now, back to Designers of Paradise and host Eric Van Lennon. Welcome back to Designers of Paradise. Today I'm speaking with Albert Bates, recent author of Burn, Using Fire to Cool the Earth. We're talking about drawing down excess carbon gases, uh, creating soils, repairing the planet, and an entire new direction for sourcing some of the mainstream ingredients we use across industry and how we can do this in a way which actually reverses climate change. For those who have heard about biochar before, possibly even experimented with production and application of it, it's been almost entirely focused upon rebuilding soil. Um, And in Bern, you and Kathleen spend a significant portion of the the journey you take us through as readers, um, investigating and uh, highlighting, laying out for us this whole, as you call it, cascade, right, of of different technologies and applications of either biochar itself or the process by which it's made the pyrolysis process and make the the argument that biochar as a soil amendment, as immensely as important as that is, actually represents a smaller fraction of the potential for drawing carbon back down and, and storing it away very, very long term through different, different kinds of technologies. Could you take us through some of those? Yeah, um, first let me just point out how biochar is effective as a climate strategy in, in a soil application. So for instance, you have um, it added to a, 
a normal amendment cycle, you put it in the compost or you add it to fertilizer or, or in some way you get it onto the field or the, or the crop. Um, maybe you're doing tree planting, you put some charcoal in the base of the hole when you're doing the tree. Um, and what happens then is that you've got a, a soil food web that is accelerated because of the presence of this porous uh, habitat for microbes. And the, the microbes don't break it down, which is the interesting factor here. You have normal carbon, that's what they call in science labile carbon, and a plant dies, the, the carbon in its roots and its uh, stem and its leaves all fall to the ground and they're decomposed by microbes. And then that goes back to the atmosphere as carbon dioxide or methane, and it, it rains back down in a few years and creates new plants again. And the site, that's the car normal carbon cycle, that's labile carbon. When you raise carbon uh, to the temperature of um, 400 to 1000 degrees Celsius, when you take it up in temperature, it, it discards all of the chemicals that it might be bonded to, the various molecules of calcium and chlorine and um, phosphorus and nitrogen, those things, those bonds break apart and those volatile gases go off. And what's left behind is the thing that has the highest kindling temperature, the, the carbon itself. So you have a carbon skeleton left behind. And carbon has this miraculous capability to bond to itself. So it forms these hard bonds, these chains and ring structures, and they get to be so tight, you know, like buckyballs, Buckminster Fullerene is, is 60 carbon atoms pulled together. If you, when a microbe uh, encounters that in the soil or anywhere, it, it doesn't want to eat it. It doesn't, it would break a tooth to try to break that bond. So microbes just pass it by and find other sources of food. And as a result, that biochar, that, that carbon in that hard form lingers in the soil and stays as a sort of a coral reef in the soil. And actually, you can find uh, examples of 250 million year old biochar from forest fires that occurred in Pangaea uh, epochs ago. And this stuff just is going to be there. So it, you're taking a time out in the carbon cycle. It's not going back up to the atmosphere. It's not going to rain back down. It's taking a time out in the soil. Well, if we think about fossil fuels being added to the atmosphere, for the last 200 years, the coal, the oil, the natural gas being burned and going off to the atmosphere as carbon dioxide, and also methane from rice paddies and from cattle and so forth, all going, taking carbon back up into the atmosphere and now causing the greenhouse effect and warming the planet. We've got too much carbon stored in the atmosphere and also in the oceans. And we need to take it back and put it in the land where it came from. It came from those fossil fuel deposits. So we need to take it from the oceans and from the air and put it back into the land. When you start to use this in agriculture, you start to use this, this uh, new, new kind of form of carbon, this hard form of carbon in, in agriculture, you're actually causing a timeout in the, in the climate cycle, in the, in the carbon cycle. And what happens is you're starting to slowly diminish the amount of carbon in the air and in the oceans, which is what we wanna do. So putting it into agriculture is a really good thing, but the problem has been that you get 
you know, there've been scientific studies now of what is the maximum that we could use and assuming we don't, um, you know, cut down forests to make biochar, we, we use just waste materials like um, uh, municipal um, sewage or uh, paper mill wastes or uh, other carbonaceous forms, cardboard and other scraps that go to the landfill. If we just use that and make biochar and we then make this sort of fertilizer out of it and add that to the soils, what's the, what's the global potential of removing carbon from the atmosphere? And the answer is typically in the range of from two to 10 gigatons per year. That's a billion tons of carbon. And that seems like a lot, a billion tons of carbon to be removed from the atmosphere every year, until you consider how much humans add to the atmosphere every year, which is around 40 billion tons. So at best, we would be taking maybe a quarter back down uh, of what we're actually putting up every year. And for me, that's not enough. We actually need to go beyond the 40 that we're putting up and maybe bring 50 down. We need to go from 415 parts per million in the atmosphere of carbon dioxide down to um, 400, and then 375, and then 350. Why stop there? Let's go to 320, let's go to 300, let's go to 280. Let's take it back to the pre-industrial levels of 240 to 260 parts per million. That's actually an area that we know we lived in for tens of thousands of years. We'd be very comfortable at that, at that concentration. So let's take it back to there. Well, to do that, you're going to have to take out more than goes in every year. That's the simple math of it. We have to find other ways to restore, to hold carbon out of the carbon cycle than just agriculture, because agriculture alone doesn't do it. So that led me and Kathleen and others who have been researching this to uh, look at other potential feedstocks and other potential stores uh, for where what we could do with the biochar. And as we did that, we discovered what we called carbon cascades, this idea that you can uh, sequence your uses of biochar and create economic value that is actually profitable in the short term. So there's an economic incentive in uh, holding this carbon away from the atmosphere. And what we found was, I'll give you a couple examples. So one example would be water filters. Everybody's probably familiar with charcoal water filters. They're quite common. Uh, and Charcoal does that as water passes through, the pores in the charcoal tend to cling on to uh, pollutants and particles of chlorine and things that you don't want in your drinking water. And so your water filter is, is functioning uh, for a while and then eventually you have to change it out. So we know that, that charcoal or carbon in the hard form can do that. And I'll distinguish charcoal from biochar here very simply and say that charcoal refers to something that you're going to want to use as a fuel. It's burned in the end and it goes back to the atmosphere, back to the ocean. Biochar is something that you're never going to burn. It's going to wind up in the soil or it's going to wind up in some physical structure in our environment that's not going anywhere. It's going, it's going to stay around for thousands of years. And it's, it's like, you know, going to the atmosphere burning and, and mining a coal and then putting it back in the ground. 
That's essentially what we're doing. We're reversing the industrial revolution in that sense. We're reducing the fossil fuel cycle and putting the, the carbon back in the ground. So water filters then can go, the spent water filters can then go to do other work. They could be an anode in a fuel cell. They can be a, uh, a mining recovery, um, a land regeneration uh, substrate in a, in a mine reclamation project. Um, there's lots of different uh, things that carbon can do in those forms, and so we can actually cascade from one use to another. Kathleen gave the example of a tofu factory where they have a problem with too much gray water, which is the whey in the tofu making, and instead of a problem that becomes stinky and, and can pollutes the nearest water source, you could filter that at the factory with a biochar filter, and then you could harvest off that, that biochar and give it to a, a farmer to use as fertilizer, and all of the nitrogen and good, good stuff, the potassium and phosphorus that's in, that was in the tofu way, now can go into a field uh, or into a crop. And that's actually so good, such a good idea that why sell the carbon, why sell the charcoal to the tofu factory? Why not just rent it to them and then sell it to the farmer? Uh, so these are kind of ideas that, that uh, involve this concept of cascading your carbon from one use to the other. And the more we began to look at that, the more amazing things that we discovered, that the features that this charcoal filter sort of thing has, that biochar can be used in so many different ways. We found it, you know, water filter is obviously a good one, but it also works very well in electronic instruments. It can be molded into, into a, a film for 3D printing. It can be made into carbon fiber that reinforces bridges and overpasses and earthquake and, and uh, different kinds of prone structures, flooding prone structures along coastlines. It, that you can have a printed, 3D printed carbon, carbon fiber wrap that goes on old crumbling infrastructure. Uh, you can actually put it into asphalt highways as the bio oil uh, replacing the, the bitumen that currently goes into asphalt highways. And that's billions of tons a year. You can put it into new concrete structures up to about um, two to five percent. It actually increases the tensile strength and the compressive strength of concrete. So it's actually a benefit to add that to those uh, concrete uses. And now you start to think about airports, runways, and, and uh, new buildings in different places of different kinds and structures of seawalls to prevent the rising tides from inundating cities. So all of those potential uses add gigatons and gigatons and gigatons. And as we did the carbon math, as we started to sum it all up, and we have tables in the book that show all this, we get to 50 to 60 gigatons withdrawal per year. 50 to 60 versus 40 that we're currently emitting. And assuming that we reach some of the targets that cities and countries and the UN are setting, the Paris Agreement is setting, you know, we'll be, we'll be taking our emissions down over the next few decades. A lot of places have a, a, a zero emissions or a neutral emissions by 2050. So by 2050, if we get it down from 40 gigatons a year to 
30 gigatons or 20 gigatons, now we begin to draw down carbon at a faster rate because we can, we can be sucking it down at 50 gigatons of rate and putting it back up at only 10 or 20 gigatons. That's a fast rate of withdrawal. We could conceivably see 350 parts per million by the later part of this century. And once you get to 350, the ice, the permanent ice is going to reform at the Arctic and the Antarctic. And wouldn't that be nice to see the ice come back and to see all the climate weirding associated with the blue ocean effect of removing the ice, all that reversed and we go back to that comfortable Holocene rather than this disastrous Anthropocene that we've got ourselves into. So there's a, there's a couple things that you, you kind of touched on and, and jumped forward that, that you put more emphasis on in, in laying that out in the book. Um, one of those being the opportunity to source uh, carbon, basically, for this process from materials which might otherwise be too toxic to put onto the land but would be perfectly fine, for instance, to embed in a road. Right. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. You know, this is this is one of the issues. If you if you're talking about municipal landfills, the carbon that's going into those might include pharmaceutical waste. It might include uh, different forms of uh, heavy metals. Uh, it could be too toxic to make into a, a soil amendment because then you're putting those heavy metals metals and so forth into the food chain. You don't want to do that. <laughs> Instead of that, if you um, put those, those forms, those feedstocks into a biochar that's going into an asphalt highway or going into a, a concrete building, now you're locking away those pharmaceutical residues or their, those heavy metals in forms that are not going to go back into the environment. Uh, and that's really a, another sort of benefit of this whole process is to sequester things that uh, would go back into our, our natural environment if not otherwise held in, in check. I think there's a lot of potential for overlooked or, or um, abandoned, you know, uh, misused or un poorly understood uh, wastes that are not really wastes if we, if we reconsider them a bit. Uh, paper mill wastes are a huge problem in many places. The ash that comes out of uh, power plants is a huge uh, environmental issue. Uh, but these things actually have huge potential if we begin to look at them as sources of carbon. What we really want is a photosynthetic source of our carbon. So we want to take, we want trees or plants to be pulling that carbon from the atmosphere. And then we want to intercept the cycle before, they, before that carbon gets back to the atmosphere. So we want photosynthetic sources. We're not talking here about um, using fossil fuels to make our biochar. We want to make it from photosynthetic sources. That means we need more trees. We can't be having plantations uh, of genetically modified eucalypts to make biomass energy. Instead, what we need is real forests. We need the kind that suck carbon out of the atmosphere at a much higher rate than plantation forests. And that tends to be old growth forests that are patch rotated in the sort of a milpa style. And that sort of thing involves having 
uh, four-leggeds and things with wings and things with gills and all these creatures, the vines and the grasses and the uh, high canopy trees and the understory, all of those things make up a, an ecology of a forest. And included in that, I would say, are the two-leggeds. So the, those of us, the humans that, that are forest creatures, and I count myself in that group because I live in a forested eco-village of about uh, 20 square kilometers of forest, I would say that we need to begin to recover the skills of living within forests and uh, coppicing and pollarding and pulling out uh, useful products like mushrooms and making forests healthy again. So this kind of leads me to the, my next uh, issue, which is the social dimension. And for Kathleen and I, when we looked at this, we saw an, an inroad in that the methods that we're describing don't require a lot of federal subsidy. It would be great to have a carbon um, tax that actually had a carbon dividend for the general people and that would put a value on the price of carbon that would make things go a little bit faster. On the other hand, there's profits to be had in these new products involving uh, the carbon cycle once you understand it. And even without all of those uh, added subsidies from governments and intergovernmental uh, agencies, it's possible to just see product lines that involve this new form of carbon going into everyday use because they come from waste materials, which are cheap or they even pay you to take away, and they go into value-added products. So we have maybe 20 chapters, I'm not gonna be able to get into all of them, of all the different kinds of products that we have, but you know, desiccants and deodorants and um, um, electromagnetic uh, filters and uh, things that do um, electronic functions and things that do uh, structural functions, all of these uh, new products can come from a natural carbon cycle that involves uh, forest managing and caring for whole vibrant ecosystem forests. And also that's kind of where my social strategy of the eco-village comes in because I can imagine eco-villages being leaders in this kind of micro-enterprise hub where they create these biorefineries that extract these extra values out of normal wastes of our of our agricultural and forestry systems and take those wastes and turn them into useful products and services like electricity for instance or um, oils that replace the chemical feedstocks that used to come from fossil fuels uh, and now make new grades of biodegradable plastics and things like that from these um, these forested oils uh, so those kinds of microenterprise hubs can become the economic engine that moves us into this eco-village world where there's no such thing as waste, where we have a circular economy, where all the loops get closed, and we begin to live in a much different way than humans have ever lived in the past. It's kind of a fulfillment of many different processes that have been slowly underway, but we're going from the stage of humans as juveniles, where we are, we're sort of a an R seer of fast growth to adults where we enter a K seer in, in the ecological parlance of uh, carrying capacity, steady state, um, complete cyclical use and very efficient systems.
Yeah, because we've we've spent so much time in that sort of adolescent phase, haven't we, where we, we, you just sort of try things to see if you're strong enough to sort of like, you know, push it through. Um, and and you know, the classic adolescent is is incredibly risk-taking and um, you know, somewhat aggressive at times, massively swinging between extremes. And, and as a species, it is, it's not, it's not only time for us to mature, but it's something that more mature societies, I think, uh, you know, very strikingly um, indicated by conversations I've had with indigenous uh, leaders and organizers and activists have, you know, frequently come around to that same point. It's like, it's kind of time to grow up, guys. You know, and, and, that, and that being the adulting of, of a species involves that taking on of responsibility and that recognition that limits have a purpose. So I like that. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the indigenous peoples because sometimes I still teach permaculture courses. I've, I've taught more than 50 of them and I don't really look forward to staying in that, in that realm of teaching over and over again the same material. But every now and then I'll do a class. And in those classes, I, I eventually come around to this idea that indigenous peoples really had it right. That it, in some ways they were a much more mature society. The ones in, in North America that were encountered by European colonists had a much more mature system going than the um, system of the European colonists who were arriving. It, they were the European colonists were still in a very juvenile phase of exploitive economics, and the um, seer that they were encountering, the group that they were encountering was actually much more advanced in a mature stage of steady state um, of survivability with um, bounty enough to meet their needs as long as they stayed within the limits of their, of their uh, providing ecosystems. And we have yet to learn that. We're going to have to very quickly, but uh, there's a lesson to be learned there from indigenous peoples. Absolutely, absolutely. It's, it's, it's brilliant to see more recognition of that happening, although it's far from mainstream, um, you know, with kind of a finger on the pulse of, of probably the more progressive side of, of ecological action and awareness. It, it does seem to be a more recognized and, and uh, frequent theme that comes up. So it's, it, it's a good time to be alive and able to experience that. Um, at the same time, it's pretty challenging. What, what kind of terms of promoting these cascade ideas and, and, and the, you know, the, the entrepreneurial and the sort of new carbon industrial potential for this? Is, is this something that you're actively now uh, going around and speaking about or how is that, how is that being unpacked? Yeah, the speaking part is not something I really feel very comfortable with. I'm more uh, introverted that way. But what it has allowed me to do mm -hmm. is to have an entree into um, certain uh, groups of, of movers and shakers around the world. Uh, I'll give the example of Patricia Scotland, the Secretary General of the of the Commonwealth of Nations, and she polled the 52 countries that made up the Commonwealth when she took office and asked them what the most pressing issue is that she should focus on, and they came back and said climate change. And it's not surprising if you think about the origins of the Commonwealth, which came from the British Empire, which was a seafaring power, 
many of their areas are islands, many of their countries are islands or are, are groups of islands, and they are threatened by sea level rise. They're threatened directly by climate change. So she made that her priority, and now they're doing amazing initiatives all over the world to try to speed up the process of reversing climate change. And I got a chance to attend some of her meetings and some of her strategy sessions, and I was invited in as a, as a consulting expert, and I was able to introduce the whole concept of this carbon cascades through biochar and microenterprise hubs and so forth. So. That's a good example of it. There are other examples of working with the private sector. Right now I'm consulting with the hotel owners along the Mexican uh, Mayan Riviera, uh, where they're inundated by seaweed. And I look at that as actually that's mother nature taking the warmth of the oceans and the added nitrogen from, from the fertilizer running off the rivers and making these vast blooms of sargassum that are traveling through the Caribbean and fouling all of the beaches where the tourists like to swim. And actually that's a benefit. If you look at it, you can take that seaweed, you can turn it into biochar. In the process, you can make electricity and all these other products and you get the benefit of the carbon sequestration, which is doing what mother nature needs, which is taking all of that uh, photosynthetic added value and turning it into a permanent store of carbon away from the atmosphere and away from the ocean. So I think these, these kinds of opportunities for me to go and consult with these business leaders and say, look, you don't have a problem. You've got an opportunity. You should be taking advantage. There are opportunities right now that are as great as anything that Cornelius Vanderbilt or Rockefeller or um, any of the Andrew Carnegie's of the previous generations may have had uh, when they first started in the age of steam. You could actually be doing these sorts of new technologies that will make you the next uh, future um, fortunes of, of these sorts of uh, carbon drawdown technologies. And how's that been received? It's, a, it's an uphill pitch. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> We're starting to get some traction. There's actually conferences uh -huh. being held now on this these kinds of pitches. You know, there's a there's a conference coming up in Oakland, California later this year called Verge, which is just looking specifically at climate related uh, technology and micro enterprise opportunities and uh, entrepreneurs matching up with venture capital to try to get to the next plateau. Uh, you see that at conferences like the Web Summit in Portugal or Collision in uh, Toronto, where entrepreneurs are doing planet tech, new kinds of planet tech to uh, develop these drawdown technologies, and they're finding uh, traction with venture capitalists who see the opportunities to get in early. That's encouraging. That's, that's very encouraging. We're coming up on the hour. Um, what do you want to leave our listeners with? Is there anything we haven't touched on that you, that you think is important to, to cover right now? Well, it's kind of an old saw and, and people get kind of bored with it. The idea that it only takes a, a few people to make a great change or that you have the power to make a change. And, and you know, people have heard that so many times it goes in one ear and out the other. And actually, that's, it's, it's the case that you don't have to have a, a majority of people vote for something to happen. Actually, it can happen very easily, very quickly, with much uh, less effort by a few people showing the way. And people follow 
ideas that are tasty and beautiful and alluring and fragrant to them more than they run from one direction to another out of fear. And I, I really would emphasize that most social change in the world has been preceded or accompanied by an art movement, whether that's uh, visual arts or dance or song. I remember the civil rights movement and how driven by the gospel music that was and by Bob Dylan and Joan Baez. I remember other social transformations just in my lifetime that had anthems like uh, the hippie era that I came out of had anthems that told us the way well. Uh, and those kinds of um, music and dance and theater, that's actually a very essential component too, that we need to have a good time and enjoy ourselves and have fun while we're changing the world. It can't just be drudgery. If it ain't fun, ain't nobody gonna do it. So we're, we're trying to craft together ecosystem regeneration camps where children can come together and they can plant trees in the daytime and party at night. Uh, we're trying to craft together transition towns where people gather together on Saturdays and swap stuff and have uh, general marketplaces and have monthly meetings to organize how their farm will find, how their towns will get back to a uh, stable set of arrangements that will be more resilient to the changes that are in store, uh, issuing their own currencies, uh, having their own uh, mechanisms of non-monetary wealth and non-monetary economic exchange. So these kinds of things are happening. They're happening all over the world. You don't have to look very far to find one near you. And I would say go out and find those and join those and, and find be part of this new conversation. Excellent. Thanks very much. Um, talking with Albert Bates here today, author of the recently released book, Burn, Using Fire to Cool the Earth. There'll be a link for that down below. Um, and I'll also uh, leave some other links uh, to the farm, the Eco Village Network, some of the other stuff that we've, we've touched on here. So thank you so much for your time, Albert, and I look forward to talking to you soon. Thanks, Eric. Great talking to you. Ciao for now. Thank you for listening to Designers of Paradise. I'm your host, Eric Van Lennep. Join me next week as we bring you another eye-opening interview with the people who are revolutionizing the way we produce our food. Indeed, the people on the front lines of designing paradise. Designers of Paradise is produced by RASA, the Regenerative Agriculture Sector Accelerator. To learn more, go to www.rasa.ag. That's www r-a-s-a dot a-g. If you have any ideas you'd like to suggest, such as folks we should be talking to or a specific topic we should cover, hit me up with your ideas on Twitter at Greenheart. That's G-R-E-E-N underscore H-E-A-R-T, Greenheart. We'll see you next week.